Hello everyone and Happy New Year. Here's hoping 2022 is a great year for everyone. This is Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling and sponsored by Suzuki Motorcycles USA. Are you ready for the revolutionary new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle? Check out the details of the Ultimate Ride at SuzukiCycles.com. This week, our contributor Laura Fitzpatrick gives us her impressions of the new Triumph Tiger 660. Laura left her cold and rainy home in Dublin, Ireland for the sunny skies and balmy temperatures of Faro, Portugal, where she got to ride the exciting new middleweight. The Tiger 660 uses the company's excellent new three-cylinder engine slotted into an ADV package. And it seems Laura really liked not just Portugal, but the Triumph Tiger as well. In the second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Mike Holliday. Mike is owner of the Crossroads Coffee Shop in Waxhaw, North Carolina. Neil lives locally in Charlotte and had been drinking Mike's coffee for years and at the coffee shop when he discovered that Mike was a fellow motorcyclist and had traveled much the same path as Neil through South America. Small world, eh? Mike recounts some of his crazy travel stories and gives an insight into what it's like to really travel on two wheels. I hope you enjoy this episode. Are you ready for this? The all-new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle is here. Widely regarded as the ultimate sport bike, the third-generation Hayabusa by Suzuki melds two generations of refinement, resulting in the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa yet. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the new Hayabusa gives riders electronic rider aids, like the quick shifter and cruise control systems, that simultaneously increase performance and comfort. With even stronger acceleration, the Hayabusa's 1340cc inline four-cylinder engine and updated driveline deliver unmatched sport bike performance. And, staying true to its iconic design, the new Hayabusa's straighter and sharper lines make it the most aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Plus, it comes in three new head-turning color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories you can choose from. These revolutionary superbikes are flying off the showroom floor, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit SuzukiCycles.com to learn more. The ultimate ride awaits. It sounds like you had a lot of fun. On the, where, where was it you went to? Was it Portugal, I think? Yeah, it was Faro in Portugal. So um, southern coast in this uh, cute little town. Well, it's a city, but we were in a small little part of it. So, um, oh, it was amazing. Yeah, I'd never been to Portugal either. So it was all new for me. <laughs> <laughs> What, what was the weather like? Because it was December, so it must have been a bit cold, wasn't it? And actually, we got very lucky um, and it was beautiful. It was um, I, I, it was in the 20s anyway, Celsius. I don't know exactly what the uh, degree was because I was just so excited. And I was like, it was it was not too hot and um, but it was perfect. Like just wearing like a mesh jacket on the bike was perfect, you know? Oh, that's all. Awesome. Yeah. I was talking to the taxi driver though. And he was saying that we actually were really lucky. It was a bit colder 
uh, the week before. But um, when he heard I was coming from Ireland, he was like, oh, but I, this, this is not the type of cold that you are, you're used to. So I'm sure it was actually normal. I'm sure it was beautiful the whole entire time. Right. Where, whereabouts in Ireland are you based? Uh, in Dublin. In Dublin. Okay. So you're kind of in the city or, or do, you get to, do you get to ride roads outside of Dublin? I'm actually, I just moved back to Ireland um, and I moved back to get my license here because the US license doesn't transfer over. Um, so I've only ridden um, a bike with like um, for my uh, license. You have to do these lessons and everything. It's a okay. much longer process than getting the license in Georgia, um, which is where I got it, which was just a breeze. But um, <laughs> so I'm back, it was so easy. So I actually live outside, of, I'm like 20 kilometers out, out from the city. Um, and it is a big bike in town. Like we have, uh, uh, they're called the Scaries Hundreds. They're, it's a motorcycle race that happens every year. It's very famous. Oh, I, I have heard of that. The, the Scaries 100. Yeah. S-K-E-R-R-I-E-S, -E -E I think. Yeah, that's the town where I'm from. Oh, Scaries, okay. All right. Yeah. So that's one of those real island road races. That's the, yeah. That's the crazy guys, the Michael Dunlop guys, and all those kind of guys. Yeah, and it's funny because I like I only know of it from going as a kid. We'd walk, you know, it's only like ten minutes from my house. We'd walk through the fields, probably with like you know some some uh, roadside alcoholic beverages. You know how we do it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was always a fun day out and. It was just crazy. You'd be standing in the field and all these bikes are just going by so fast. And I like it hasn't been on um because of COVID and stuff, but I uh I can't wait to see it again because I'll be viewing it from a completely different perspective. Crazy. But so if you've ridden roads around sort of Ireland at sort of around there and obviously around Georgia where you were based for a while, how did the roads in Portugal and, and what you rode? Um, on the Triumph, how do they sort of compare? Is it sort of similar stuff, just better weather or, or were they completely different roads? I'd say, have because I've ridden all over America um, and I've ridden in Ireland and it's a combination of all of them, but all of the best of everything. It was, it was just perfect route and the perfect roads. They had, um, there's a lot of roundabouts, which we don't have in America as much, or if we do, it's, 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 it's more dangerous than an intersection because people don't know how to use them. Um, <laughs> and so, my experience, anyway. so <laughs> yeah. like, I'm like half American, half Irish. I know the accent doesn't really say that much, but I have to be careful because sometimes I like, you know, I don't know, flag the Irish or the American and when I'm trying to slag myself though at the same time, but um yeah so the with in portugal we started off um on the coast and then to get into the mountains we went through the town but the town was like really wide um highways and interlinked with uh, roundabouts that were really wide and uh very well designed and which is they were better designed in ireland everything about it, it kind of just was like designed for progression you know, instead of stop, start, you know. Um, and then I also noticed that there wasn't as many, um, I don't think I ever had 
to uh, look out for cars coming from smaller roads, secondary roads. And I don't know whether it's because it was just, uh, I don't know, but usually when you're riding a bike, I always find, I'm always waiting for a car to go in front of me, you know, to pull out. And in Ireland, it's, it's you know, there's small country roads coming from ditches. You don't even know they're there. In, in America, it's like, yeah, you're on these like really busy roads and um, freeways, I forgot the word, freeways, and you'll have all these cars coming left, right, center. In Portugal, there was none of that. And um, so you just didn't, you know, it was just one less thing to worry about on the bike. You could just like let rip down the road, then you get to a roundabout and you're just zooming in and it's just like, yeah, it was really good. It was, you could just go, I don't think I even stopped really, you know, from one location to the next, I didn't have to like stop the bike. So was it was it very hilly there? I mean, were pretty, you know, quite tight corners or were the roads really like fast and flowing where you could get some speed going or both maybe, I suppose? Yeah, it was both. So when I first took off, um, I we went through these really small winding roads and um, through like it was almost uh, it was almost like a housing estate, but it was with villas, you know, housing estate doesn't do it any justice. Um, it was just gorgeous small little roads you know you're keeping an eye out for dogs jumping out onto the road and stuff so you're going a little bit slow but then once you get out of that you're on main roads and and that was when um I think I like shouted in glee in my helmet I was just like when I (laughs) got it in here I was like okay now I'm like ready and then when you then we went further after about 15 minutes we went further and we um we started going uphill and that's when it reminded me of roads in um, northern Georgia, north Georgia, like the Tale of the Dragon, um, the Blue Ridge Parkway, those type of roads. But then also they would like open up. We rode the Tale of the Dragon recently um, and the Blue Ridge Parkway actually a couple of months ago. Yeah, what is it? Three hundred and eighteen corners in eleven miles or something. Yeah. So something crazy. Like that. I mean, tight, 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 tight corners. I mean, some of them first gear, you know, first and second gear. Yeah. But but also, there's a certain you can get a rhythm going there. Yeah. You know, you can sort of left, right, left, 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 right, 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 left. You know. Yeah. And but you can get a bit of a rhythm and and enjoy it. The Blue Ridge Parkway we found was um, a lot more open. I mean, obviously it's 500 miles long and we didn't ride the whole thing, but the bit that we rode was really big and open and with some flowing corners and it was really nice too. So it was kind of like that? Yeah, it, it, it was. And um, yeah, you would like, I, I did the, the, the Tale of the Dragon on the 250 Rebel. It was like my, my first bike, I was riding it with, trainers and a three-quarter face helmet like I didn't have a clue but um you know I survived to tell the tale but what I did love about that I was following um, my friend who was on a 1200 Sportster and I was keeping up with him because you know in in those type of roads you're just you know you're just dancing with the bike almost you know and the the lighter the easier it is to get around bends um which is what I noticed about the Tiger was that it um, was so good. It was better than the Rebel 
because it was it felt lighter you know it wasn't all clanky and and stuff and that's in that's interesting because a 250 rebel is really quite a small bike it's probably i haven't checked the weight but it's got to be a hundred pounds lighter than the than the triumph 660 so that's interesting so it kind of the triumph 660 is so well balanced that it really just gave you that kind of confidence it did um and i think it was the seating position and also like even when even when you say it's a, like 100 pounds lighter it didn't feel like that at all like the minute i got on the uh tiger 660 um with the like the narrow standover width and everything and i just instantly i was like okay this bike is like i can throw this around were you able to touch the ground easily with it i mean how tall are you if you don't mind me asking i'm 511 so i'm pretty tall and um, okay but yeah my i was like flat-footed on the bike how do you i mean it's hard to answer but how do you think a, a, a shorter person i don't want to say girl because obviously you know men ride it too but but how i'm trying to identify the kind of person that might be attracted to this bike other than just expert level riders if you're a a beginner or an intermediate rider maybe a young lady like yourself and you're kind of like oh i think i could step up to this bike do you think how i mean how tall do you think they would have to be what kind of inseam maybe um maybe like i think you'd get away with it if you were like five six five seven like i really okay yeah i because there was small there was smaller there was um shorter people there that um they were fine on it and because of like the handlebars uh the way they're positioned and the width of them um along with the the seat you're you're like you're in an upright position so even if you do have to stand on the ball of your feet um you still have like the balance and control to move it around and um, right i mean that's just this would be this is the type of bike i'm looking at now but what i would at my my real goal is to get onto um like the gs 1200 1250 the bmws oh wow um and i can see myself probably having to stand on the balls of my feet i've tried a few of them and i even sat on the, the tiger 900 and i was standing on the balls of my feet but when you when the bike gives you that confidence um you kind of learn how to you know balance it around and also you're not really you're not going to be going off-road with this bike but you could but you know okay i don't think being flat-footed is definitely necessary you know the guys were actually surprised they were like oh my god you can you stand on your feet like is that your two feet on the ground it's like yeah my feet are on the ground I'm, you know i think they were even surprised but um and i think they were surprised too because they couldn't you know well, at five at five eleven, I mean, you know, I'm only six foot, and and I I could probably you know I can flat foot on most bikes, so so you and I are probably in a similar kind of range, um, but but it's also with these we, we found with different motorcycles, it's not just the height, it's also the shape of the seat at the front. If the seat is quite narrow at the front where it meets the tank then you're not having to sort of spread your legs out so bizarrely that you've got no length left in them. Yeah. You know what I mean? In other words, if it's quite narrow, even shorter people can, can reach down. 
yeah. um, with their legs. Um, even if you've, I mean, I've got a 33 inch inseam, um, which allows me to sort of basically flat foot most bikes other than the really crazy tall adventure bikes. But, but, uh, but people with, you know, 30 inch inseam or, or less, if the seat is relatively narrow at the front, then it, you, you'd be surprised how easy it is to touch the ground. Like say, even if you're on the balls of your feet, as long as you could, as long as the bike's well balanced, you're okay. Yeah. And it, you felt like that, that the tiger, the seat was pretty good at the front. It wasn't a big old wide thing. No, it was very narrow, um, which was like so easy to um, okay. get on the bike. You know what I mean? Um, it was very easy. But they also uh, do provide a lower seat height. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, that's great. So, so uh, I know they do that with the uh, the street triple. I think one of my best friends, um, his wife has a street triple, and they got like the the lower seat version. Oh, right. Um, so that she could reach, and and uh, and it's great. That's I think I think it's smart of the manufacturers to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So you really liked the handling of the Triumph 660. Yeah, that was the main thing for me, um, because it just gave me like so much uh, confidence going in and out of the small roads and the small little towns, because um, that's what it was. It was like real big open roads um, with curves. Then you would get into um, more bends and twisties that you know you were in second, third gear and then all of a sudden um you would drop down to 50 kilometers and uh you were just going through this small little town or village it was just in the mountain so um they were kind of dispersed and so you would slow down and and um navigating through these tiny like sometimes cobblestones you know and it was just it was just so easy and you actually because of um the maneuverability of the uh bike it was you could like take in what you were seeing you know wave at people because everybody it's a big biker town and everybody was waving at all of us going by on our bikes um which was awesome pretty cool but uh yeah yeah so and that's that's what i look for in a bike because um the bike i do have which is in new orleans right now is um a honda shadow but it's the 2011 version. So it's a little bit sportier than the, the older versions. It's not so much as a cruiser. And that's why I stuck with it for so long is just because I could throw it around, you know what I mean? And, and it, once you don't feel, when you can do that and the handling is good, you don't like, you're not um, determined by the weight of the bike, you know? So you can get in and out of sticky situations if you need to, and you kind of feel oh. as if you're part of it, you know, part of the machine. Oh. Yeah, you know, even I, when I was on my road trip, I ended up in, um, like, I ended up in really deep sand in the desert. It's just such the one place, the one place you don't need to be on on my bike. Um, and now after riding the Tiger, even though it's not for off road, I do think that, um, you can get yourself out of situations like that if you do find yourself off road. You know, just from the handling and the the lightness of the bike. That's that's uh, that's impressive. 
so I take it the suspension is not electronically, there's no electronic activation on the suspension. No. I take it it's just standard suspension. It's probably got some adjustability in it. If somebody's like a heavier rider or, um, or maybe a faster rider or something. But typically, Triumph suspension is pretty good. Yeah, I think you can, you, you can adjust the back a little bit if you have a, a lot of luggage um, or, like you said, like a passenger. Um, yeah, um, but it, it's not like electronic. It just kind of kicks. It just works itself, you know. Um, sure, but it felt pretty good. I mean, riding, I mean, you were talking about cobblestones. I mean, did it, did it sort of soak up the bumps pretty well or... Did you find that when you hit a hard bump, it would kind of chuck bang through the bike and be like, oh, shit, you know, and, but it, it, it seemed to soak everything up pretty well. Yeah, yeah, it was really good because uh, there was a few speed bumps and stuff like that. And of course, when you're like, there's not many um, speed signs um, up there. So, you know, there was a couple of times when we would hit a speed bump, you know, just maybe 20 kilometers over, um, you know, and but it was fine. I was just like more worried about the tires and anything else but uh you know after that I was like oh that actually like didn't hurt at all you know I didn't notice the suspension because it was just always there and it was good you know what I mean um <laughs> right I know exactly what you mean yeah you know the the foot pegs um they've got like they put extra length with the foot pegs to the seat I think than the trident so with that like um you're standing up a lot you know you're moving around it really does like bring the sport into um adventure motorcycling um so even when there was any bumps or anything like you could anticipate you were like you know up off the seat and it just like made it more fun you know so what was the the motor like it's um the triumph uh tiger 660 has an inline three-cylinder motor yeah um, and i think i think from um nick was saying from some of the other one in one of their other bikes with this kind of motor it was it's pretty smooth what was your impression of the motor um yeah it was it's like the liquid cooled 12 uh valve uh, 660 cc inline triple um just had such a sporty character to it and it was very lively and responsive um you know it uh remains unchanged from the tridents so it's got 80 horsepower at 10,250 RPM um, it just it was it was responsive in all riding conditions so whether I was on the open road and the power that came from it um, it really surprised me that it was even 660 you know and <laughs> then when you were going when you were slowing down um, the throttle response just um, it just it was able to get you out of all these small little bends really quick you're in second gear i couldn't believe it in second gear just zipping out of these corners and stuff <laughs> like that you know um so yeah yeah that's really addictive yeah um and then they have the the ride by wire throttle as well makes it like super smooth so um so that it wasn't it wasn't jerky at all even in like the lower gears you didn't it didn't like surprise you and you're coming out and oh wow that's a bit no not at all and i was going in i was in third gear going around these um into into the small corners and when we stopped for coffee i was talking to the guys and i was asking them like you know what what, what gears are you going into in these small corners because 
they were they were a lot faster than me. They're also like racers. So I was just interested in <laughs> how they actually, you know, how they rode the bike. And they were like, oh, go into second gear and the bike will just like just t turn for you, you know. So I tried that, you know, I was kind of from the bikes I've ridden before. I was like, if I go into second gear, you know, I'm going to flip over the handlebars. You know, <laughs> it's just going to go. It's going to jerk so much. I'm going to flip over the handlebars. It's going to be that's me done. But no, I tried it and they were completely right. And um, they also were like telling me that they um, were, you know, more off the seat than on it. So, um, and they were like leaning with the bike a lot more. And I wasn't, um, I was, I didn't, it was a combination of all these things. I think I was playing it too safe at the first, uh, the first hour of riding it. And then when they were saying that, yeah, go into second gear, go around the corners and, you know, throw your knee out, like just lean with the bike, just, you know, go all for it, like be as dramatic as you can. And I started doing that and I was like, oh my God, this bike just wants to go, you know, and you can go so fast <laughs> once you do all these simple things. And I got off um, the bike. I was keeping up with the guys ahead of me, um, which I was pretty proud of. And we got to one of the stops where we looked out over this valley and uh, uh, one of the the guys who races took off his helmet and I took off mine and, and I a smile from like ear to ear, just like I was beaming. And he, so did he. And I was just like, what is he so giddy about? And he was like, gave me a big like high five. And he was just like, oh my God, you look like you had so much fun and what a transformation. And um, that was really like, that was the highlight of the day because the bike just like, once I really had fun with the bike and kind of trusted it more, um, it just turned me into a better rider, you know? And um yeah I was just like so confident then um but yeah it has everything to do with the engine and with the the ride by wire and the slip and assist clutch it was all of these things combined and then the narrow standover width um because once I actually started using it to my advantage of like getting off the seat you know and actually like leaning into it I was thinking back to Scary's 100 riders and I was like okay just look like them you know <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah no it was uh yeah it's a very fun bike that's the mark of a really um a good motorcycle to me is for me i kind of i look for a motorcycle to be easy to mm -hmm. ride because if it's easy to ride you're not having to fight with the machine everywhere um if the handling's nice and neutral, you know, when you turn in, it doesn't flop into the corner. It isn't hard to turn in. It just kind of goes where you want it to. If everything on it is nice and easy to operate, you forget about the machine and you are able to focus on yourself and you're able to focus on the road ahead and the speed that you're carrying and looking out for hazards and what's happening. And like you say, if you're starting to focus on your technique and, oh, maybe I need to get off the bike a bit more or your body position, that kind of stuff. And that's that's a sign of a good motorcycle is when you can get off it at the end of a ride and go, you know, I really don't know too much about it. It just did everything I asked it to. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's really cool when it does that. Yeah. And another thing I will say that 
I don't even know if it really, well, there are other writers out there like me, but um, for the other guys, I don't think they really were too, it didn't bother them too much, but the TFT display shows what gear you're in. Um, and it like is, is just so clear. It's in color uh, LED and it, it tells you everything. But just at a glance, you can see like what gear you're in, whatever else. And which like, I'm sure like after, when you get used to your own bike, you know what gear you're in at whatever time. But like, just from going around those bends and stuff, it was it was just so like easy, just like at a glance to be like, okay, cool, I'm in third, I'm in second, now I'm gone. Um, Cause I'm sure I've like been in, you know, when you, when you mix up third and fourth or second and third, like you don't, it usually gets to the point where you're like, oh no, the bike doesn't feel right. Or it's not happy right now. Oh, I'm in the wrong gear. Whereas it just kind of, I don't know. You just felt like you were in complete control at all times. What was the, the you know, the clutch and the gearbox like? Um, I mean, manufacturers go to a lot of effort nowadays to make the clutch nice and easy. Was it, did it have a good feel? And the other thing I wanted to ask you was, does the gearbox come with any kind of quick shifter? And I don't know if you're familiar with those, but where you can click, you can click the gears up and down without having to use the clutch. Um, so, yeah. you know, did it come with any of that stuff? Was the clutch and the gearbox easy to use? Um, the clutch was super easy to use, um, but it does come with um, a quick shifter. It's just uh, like you have to, it's an additional. Um, so you'd buy it okay. separately with the bike. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, I was talking to the, to the other guys about it and they were saying like, you, you know, it, sometimes it's nice to have it, but you really don't need it with this bike. Cause the clutch is just so easy to use. Um, uh, like I said, I got that slip and assist. So it's, it's just, um, yeah, there's, there's, um, you know, it, it's just, yeah, very easy to pull in and out. And um, I didn't really notice like my hands getting sore or anything. And I actually have like uh, injuries on my um, left hand. So when I do ride my, when I ride other bikes, especially riding like Harleys or something, I'm like, I can't change the gear that, you know, I really have to like pull on it. Um, which just like, it's just extra effort and it's just draining. Whereas this, I, it just, I never felt it, you know, if, if anything, it was just like, uh, it's like changing gears on a, on a bicycle or something. Like you were just having fun with it, you know? Um, and then you can all, all right. yeah. But yeah, the, the, the handling of the, the handles of both the brakes and, and the clutch were uh, super easy and just kind of, you know, flowed with your riding. You didn't notice them really. Actually, I was going to ask you about the brakes uh, sort of um, because again, you know, manufacturers, you, you've got to be a bit careful with brakes because sometimes really good brakes can be a bit uh, a bit jerky when you first apply it and you can it can sort of like over brake. Yeah. Um, but I prefer something that's got a little bit of soft initial application and then it's nice and powerful if you need it. Yeah. How were the how did the brakes feel? They were very powerful. Um, but that I liked that. I did like the responsiveness of the brakes. Um personally just um because it was like you know when we were going really fast you could just the the front brake would like slow you down so quickly and then drop a gear and then you were gone you know drop two gears and gone and you didn't have to like really leave too much space 
uh, for like switching down gears or whatever, just using a front brake. Um, I that was before that was going into a bend. I did notice on at the beginning of my ride, I was going downhill and I was going way too fast. Um, and I, there was a horseshoe bend. So I, uh, you know, I put my foot down on the back brake pretty hard and uh, it started like the, I, 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 I didn't know what, I thought I broke the bike, you know, in the middle of a bend, cause I just heard this like, you know, it was, and the vibrating. I thought the foot peg was scraping the ground. I couldn't understand it cause I didn't think I was breaking that hard. Um, but it was probably just because it was only back brake and I wasn't using the front brake. Um, but anyway, so it, it, it slowed me down enough for me to, you know, continue to bend safely. Um, and then when I got off, I was talking to one of the guys as always. I was always asking questions and uh, I was like, something happened with the bike. And I was explaining to him. He was like, yeah, that was the ABS kicking in. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I've ridden bikes with ABS, but never experienced the kick in, kick in that much. Um and he was saying like, yeah, you know, they are actually quite sensitive, probably almost too sensitive. Um, but then, you know, in, in a case like mine, I like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad it was there. You know what I mean? Cause I obviously, the, the speed of me going downhill, like, and in whatever speed I was going anyway, you know, I needed that extra, um, support and, uh, yeah, it really helped me. I like when I realized that I had like a lot more confidence in the bike. And then also I was like, okay, if it happens again, I'm not going to freak out, you know? Yeah. It's, it's real easy to overuse a back brake because obviously you don't have as much feel with your foot inside a boot, um, as you do with your hand, you know, on the handlebar. So it's real easy, especially if you're, if you go into a corner and you're a little bit hot into the corner, it's real easy just to, add a bit too much and you're like oh and i actually don't use the rear brake very much at all um but uh abs is a really good insurance policy yeah in case you get it wrong and you're like oh and you know the abs definitely saved you a bit there i'm not saying you would have crashed but but if you use too much rear brake and not enough front brake and you're in a little hot you could have you would definitely have locked up the rear wheel for sure yeah. And that would have started it sliding. And then all of a sudden you're in a kind of panic recovery mode going, oh shit, 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 you know. Yeah. Um, but instead you're like, no, oh, why is the why is the pedal pumping? <laughs> you know, what's that dunk, 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 dunk noise? That's the ABS preventing the rear wheel from locking up. Yeah. So that you know it's still it's still slowing you down and you can get around the corner. Yeah. I think it, it I don't even use the, I, I didn't use the back. Well, I used to use it like 40, 60, say. Um, but then after being in Ireland and doing these lessons, the guy I was getting a lesson off, it was like really wet and it was really mucky, muddy country roads. And uh, he was getting me to use the back brake a lot more and he was trying to make me more comfortable with it. So that was like two days before I went to Portugal. So then I just became like, you know, very confident in my back braking abilities and yeah it was only after that that you know I really was like okay you know I can you know switch you know with the the front and the back but um because that's really what happened you know what I mean it was I, I just obviously I kind of freaked out a little bit and didn't realize the pressure I was putting on the back brake and stuff and which you know it, after a while I realized that that happens you know 
down into second, reposition yourself and you're good to go, you know? Um, right. So right. that was just kind of like, a, oh, okay. So the technology does work, you know, um, I can trust. Oh, it definitely does. It's not, the bike isn't broken. <laughs> no, it definitely works. I was, uh, a few years ago, um, I was a launch of, uh, of a Kawasaki, one of their big, you know, flagship sport tourer motorcycles. It was actually the Concourse 14. And the way Kawasaki do their launches, typically they'll assign one staff member to, to one journalist. And we were up in Northern California on similar roads. And I was with the Kawasaki staff and he's a really good rider. He's a good guy and a, and a great rider. And if I'm honest, we were riding way too fast and I'm following him and we crest over this hill at, oh, I don't know, 80, 90 miles an hour, only to discover that as we crest over the hill, there's just a short downhill, very bumpy section, and then a hairpin turn at the bottom of it. Oh. And we were carrying way too much speed and being way too stupid. And he and I both literally together just grabbed a handful of brake. And I felt the whole front was, like you say, I was going, bye, 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 man. I could feel it through my pumping at the lever on my hand. The whole thing's like, and I can hear the front tiger as I'm hitting all these bumps. I'm like, sweet mother of God, we're never going to make this corner. And somehow the bike slowed down enough that we could creep around this corner. And he pulled over and like lifted it. We both lift up our visors. And I look, and my eyes must have been like as big as, you know, saucers. And his were the same. He was completely white. I mean, his whole, all the color drained from his face. And I looked at him and I went, I guess the ABS works then. <laughs> <laughs> and we both just rode off and after that i'm like there is no way i mean i'm a i'm a pretty experienced guy and uh, you know i'm considered an expert level rider there is no way i could have stopped that bike without abs because hitting those bumps the front wheel would have gone there's just no way yeah. and I, i'd have panicked enough that i'd have come off the brake and i'd have just gone straight on at the end yeah. So I might not have crashed, but I certainly wouldn't have made the corner. Yeah. But more than likely, I'd have crashed. Yeah, it could have. It would have been really ugly. The ABS totally saved us both. Yeah. So yeah, so that was a salutary, you know, accidental lesson in how good ABS is. <laughs> oh shit. So, so I guess the Triumph also has other electronic aids as well. It's got like power modes, I think yeah probably got a rain road and a normal and a sport or something like that it's got a rain road and um rain road <laughs> a rain mode <laughs> and a road mode um and i didn't it was the we were lucky not to have to use the, the rain mode um well i mean it would have been nice to have a rain shower so i could test it out but it didn't happen um and it also has switchable traction controls uh which i also didn't really get to test out um okay it was just because they were just great roads it was ideal riding but after seeing like what all the other technology does and um like the technology behind the brakes and suspension and, and everything else um i definitely would trust the rain mode um and the different traction controls which um which would be very useful here in ireland where it's like 90 percent wet like all the time. Yeah, same as England. I grew up in London, so yeah, I know. Oh yeah, like it's not even raining, but it's wet outside. I don't even know how it happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm obviously like now that I've returned home um, from America and I 
was just in America for six years and, and that's where I was doing all my riding. Now that I'm home, I'm looking at all these different bikes. I'm looking noticing all the different riders and and they're all riding like ADVs that like you have to buy for every type of weather, but mostly like wet and muddy and slippery surfaces. Um, so with riding the, the Triumph and, and going around the bend and, and seeing how the ABS kicked in, like if that was slippery, you know, without, e without, without even changing modes or whatever, if that was even just slippery, like, you know, it definitely saved me in, in that incident. So yeah, I'm trying to get them to send me over one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a road trip around Ireland in the summer. Um, I would be looking to take it on long road trips and it's comfortable for long road trips. Um, and with the seating position and the the seat itself, um, it's got nice padded seat, but it's um and it's at the, the narrow width where you're just um you know you're not really cramping up your legs at all sure does uh does the 660 come with uh luggage at all or is that an optional extra yeah so that is another reason why i would be thinking about taking uh the tiger 660 on long road trips is for the luggage that it um comes with but I, it's like i think you get it you can get it additionally but um yeah it, it they have uh, all the mounts are already on the bike and um so you just the luggage just like clicks into place um, and it doesn't compromise the style or look of the bike at all. Um, the top pannier has got, um, is big enough to hold uh, two helmets. So, you know, if you did have a, a passenger, it's, it's always handy to be able to put two helmets in the, in the case. I, well, I just know that from, from living in New Orleans and having had helmets robbed on me. Like it's very handy actually to have something to lock it up to um, or lock it into. Um, but also but I'm looking at the two helmets in that in that compartment and I'm like, okay, that's a tent and that's a sleeping bag. Um on the side compartments, I'm like, okay, like toolbox, kitchen, like I, I, everything. It, it definitely would fit everything into it. And and that's what makes it like adventure. Um is the hard luggage that come that you can get with it um, and how easy it just uh, mounts on and off the bike um, just from experience you know um, that is a, a must for long road trips and also daily commutes too um, you know I've and I've that's how I ride that's why the bike is um, marketed really well for somebody like myself who uses a motorcycle for their like daily commute um, so groceries and whatever plants I, I can't lamps everything if you can like name it i've tried to carry it on a bike with no luggage <laughs> so yeah the extra extra space is is very nice and in fact it's, it's got waterproof liners too well it sounds like um you had a great time on it and you really like the like the motorcycle yeah um I think what the only thing I haven't really mentioned is there's a like the one hand um, adjustable windscreen, which is very useful for long road trips um, the fairing, the front fairing. When you're going fast on long road trips, you're not uh, moving side to side or, or being like bustled around. And then also it's it's got nice airflow when you are in the city going um, at slower speeds. OK, upright pose position and the handlebars. The, the visibility distance from the seat to the foot peg everything like the minute you sit on the bike you're just like instantly comfortable and just 
you know, ready to go. And then the technology, you turn the switch and the technology turns on and you're just reminded of like how much is actually, you know, the bike actually has that you don't necessarily see yet. Sounds like a great bike and it's less than $10,000. It's uh, $92.95. So, so essentially $9,300. It's sounds like a great machine for the price. Yeah. And they do, um, I think it's 10,000 miles service intervals and stuff. So it's a, it's a very like low cost motorcycle anyway. Um, and yeah, definitely for an all round motorcycle, like with uh, brand new with the technology that it has, like you really can beat that price, especially compared to its competitors. Um, which is, which is why I'm like even looking into it. Cause you know, I, I, you know, when you're, especially when you're going into middleweight, you don't want to be spending, you know, 20, 20 grand on a motorcycle that, you know, you know, kind of takes the fun out of it. You know, you want to be able to, you don't want to feel too bad if you, you know, drop it or get a scratch here or there or, you know. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much for, for uh, representing us at the Triumph 660 launch. And uh, I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you and I appreciate your insight into the bike. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. And I was so happy to do it. Are you ready for the revolutionary new 2022 Suzuki Hayabusa motorcycle? Hailed as the ultimate sport bike, the third generation Hayabusa melds two generations of refinement, resulting in the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, 1340cc inline four-cylinder engine and updated driveline deliver unmatched performance. Plus, it comes in three new head-turning color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate ride awaits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. In this next segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Mike Holliday, owner of the Crossroads Coffee Shop in Waxhaw, North Carolina. Neil lives locally to Mike and visits Crossroads Coffee almost daily. Although for some odd quirk of the universe, Neil and Mike were somehow never in the shop at the same time, so they never met. However, when it actually happened, Neil was blown away to discover that Mike was not just a fellow motorcyclist, but they'd also travelled much the same path on different trips across South America. Small world, eh? <laughs> so Mike and Neil get to reminisce about some of their equally crazy travel stories, and they give us an insight into what it's like to really travel on two wheels. So I am sitting today with Mike Holiday in Waxhaw, North Carolina. He's the owner of the Crossroads Coffee Shop, which is a very famous and... Uh, at a landmark point of Waxhaw, the small town near where I live in North Carolina. So it's a big meeting spot for cyclists, bicyclists. Um, Mike's been in business there for between 10 and 15 years. 22. 22 years. And today we're going to be discussing the unique uh, intersection of our lives when after many, many years of going to the coffee shop, I finally met Mike and realized that we both were riding around on motorcycles in South America in 1995. And uh, Mike actually had a much more epic and arduous journey than I did because he started here in North Carolina. He 
he rode out west and then went completely south on an older Harley Davidson. So Mike is going to take it away here in Waxhaw talking about his Harley and the trip he took to South America. Yeah, I uh, I was living in Chapel Hill in North Carolina and uh, got sick of everything. I just finished grad school a year before and decided to just get on my bike and go and just quit everything and left. And so this was 1995. 94. That oh, was 94. still 94. And how yeah. old were you at this point? 94. I think I was 34. I would have been 34 then. Yeah. And single, not married, no kids single, at that point? Single, no kids. Um, I'd had a girlfriend, broke up with her about the same time, finished grad school, got a master's in social work, and, and was working at the University of North Carolina. And I just decided... I didn't want to be a researcher and and quit. So, so at that time you had the old Harley. Yeah, it was. It wasn't real, real old at that point. It was a, that was an '86 Softail, um, which had a 21-inch front wheel on it, which was a mistake if there was ever a mistake to take to South America. Um, I think I dumped it in every country in the Western Hemisphere and every state in the Union before I before I was finished, I uh, I ate it a lot. Um, fortunately, but, in South America, if you dump it there, somebody will run up and help you pick it back up. In the States, we pretty much look at you, unless we're bikers, you know. So, filming the story, it's 1994, you just come out of graduate school, you've got your Harley-Davidson soft tail, you didn't know you were going to South America, you, you just thought you were going for a ride, or you were going to go clear your head? I was gonna go out west, yeah, I was just, yeah, just, take a little ride, go see some old friends, um, took off. I had a brother in, um, where was he then? I guess he was in Mississippi, and so I rode down there, and then I had a friend in Arkansas, and I rode up there. Had another friend out in Texas, and I rode down there. Um, then I had a cousin who I'd never met. He was 85 years old, Harry, and um, I'd, I'd been invited to come out and meet Uncle Harry. You lived in, in Vegas, or right next to Vegas, in Boulder City. And went out there, and he, he taught me how to play nickel slots. And so, went and did that. And on the way into Vegas, um, I was, well, I, I'd been to the Grand Canyon, and I was coming across the Mojave, and it was pretty much, it was 117 in the shade, and there was no shade. So it was really hot. And so I'm coming across the Mojave. And now this was before the, 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 the bike started running on one cylinder and pow, 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 which was kind of bad. Um, so I'm, I'm riding across the Mojave Desert in the middle of nowhere. And it's so hot that I would fill up a, uh, take my shirt and dunk it into a, a sink wherever I went, put it back on like a long sleeve shirt. And as, as soon as 10 minutes went by, it was like dry and stiff. It was just so hot some guy comes pulling up next to me on a bmw and he's wrapped up like a swami he's got a black jacket on and a full face helmet and you know you can't tell anything about him and he pulls up next to me and and yells at me uh you're from north carolina huh he saw my tag i was like yeah you know, he goes what part i said well chapel hill he goes i'm from moorhead city and and, and I said, yeah, I used to live in Greenville. And he goes, yeah, is your name Mike? 
I said, pull over! And I'd, I'd camp next to this guy in, in Daytona, and he'd help me put a crash bar on that bike. And I used to ride with what was called the Chapel Hill Motorcycle Association, and this guy used to come up and ride with us sometimes. It's like, out in the middle of Mojave. And it's like, where, where'd you come from? So that was, that was kind of cool. Um, so anyway, and went out and went to the West Coast, and then went up the Pacific Coast Highway, went up into Canada, um, all around BC, and um, up into, uh, into uh, went up past Calgary, and you know, people just put me up all the way. It was really cool. Um, Were you and, camping at times? Yeah, I was camping at times, and other times people would just say, "Yeah, hey, come stay at the house," you know, that kind of thing, which was nice, and. Um, Rarely would get a room and stuff. I didn't, you know, I was living on a shoestring pretty much, and uh, staying in hostels too. Hostels are great. Yeah, and uh, went up into um, uh, Jasper and Banff and up in there and up where the where the lakes turn the the, the teal color and all that kind of. It was really beautiful. And then uh, um, it was weird. I I went to this one hostel this one one night and it's like middle of the night. And all of a sudden, I'm coming up this road, and it's just mud. It just turns to mud. And you know, the bike with me and everything on it was about a thousand pounds. I mean, it weighed in because I, I pulled it through a truck stop one time, and just you know, said to the guy, "Hey, what do I?" And he just goes, he just held up a finger. One, you weigh a thousand pounds, you know. Uh, after that, I started sending stuff back home. Like this is too much stuff, you know. And uh, but anyway, the I mean, the bike's just fishtailing all the way up this hill, just boom, 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 and, uh, but I made it up to the top and was pretty pleased that, with all that and, you know, covered in mud and all that kind of thing, but, um, anyway, oh, when I was in New Mexico, now I'd met this guy, um, I, I went to Carlsbad Caverns and checked out the caverns, which is beautiful, you know, underground caverns, and, you, know, you go down there, it's 50 degrees, and you come back up and it's 110 or whatever, and, and so, I come out and there's some guy sitting on a motorcycle next to mine. And we strike up a conversation and said, well, what are you doing? I said, you know, we're just riding around. He was just riding around too. He said, well, uh, you want to go find a campsite or something? I was like, yeah, we'll go do that. And so we, we found a campsite and hung out and ended up hanging around together for about a month and a half. And uh, rode all around New Mexico and up into Colorado, went to the Telluride Bluegrass Festival and, you know, just had, just had a good time. Um, the band played actually there. That was... Uh, you know, toward the toward the end of the years, the band actually played. Of course, Robbie Robertson was gone, but it was still great. Um, but um, anyway, then we got sick of each other, and he was talking about going to Alaska, and I was going out to ride the Pacific Coast, and so. Said, okay, what was he well, riding? He was riding um, a, a, a 750 Goldwing Honda. I think it was a. I think it was a 78, 77 or 70, I think it was 77 Goldwing. So it would have been a thousand four-cylinder. Yeah, that's right. And it had... So um, unfaired in those days? Well, he had a, he had like a Vetter fairing on it. A lot of them um, did, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, had like an amplifier you know, bolted into his, uh, um, into his saddlebag so he could jam out and all that kind of thing. So it had some jam on there. And uh, yeah, we were actually, we were riding through Mesa Verde together in Colorado and here comes this deer walking down the side of the road with that stupid you know gee do you think I ought to go across in front of these guys look you know stumbling back and forth and all of a sudden man it just jumped right out I was behind him and it jumped right out and it hit it full on across his fairing 
boom and he didn't go down at all that the deer flipped off him and landed next to me by then i was stopped and i'm looking down going yep looks dead and and then its head popped up it looked around and then hopped up and just ran away like holy shit so he um the what it did was the 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 welds that held his fairing to to the frame of his bike had just snapped so it was one of those times where we had to go find a find a welder which wasn't the only time when we were together we had to find a welder that's for sure um so where did you leave him i think seems to me we're back in new mexico and i can't remember if he had an uncle or something like that somewhere there that we we stayed with somebody or somebody had an uncle or something and we stayed with them for a couple days and then you know i was like okay he was taken off to uh, I, I thought he was going to alaska and and i was going out to see you know friends and go up the pacific coast highway and do that thing because i'd never done it and uh so anyway um that's that's what i did and i i i tried to get a hold of him one other time after that because we had talked about maybe oh, maybe i'll go to alaska you know that sounds kind of cool and anyway but you know we we lost track i think we might have talked once and then uh of course no email no cell phones unless you're tied to a landline how are you going to get a hold of people right you know i actually had a bag phone never used really that I, you know, I think I paid $10 a month for that, you know, if you ever used it, it was going to cost you, you know, some astronomical amount of money. So I never used it, but it was like, okay, if I'm really in a jam, I've got this thing and had it shoved in the saddlebag. Of course, by the time we went to South America, you know, that was gone. I mean, it wasn't like it was going to be any use there. You need a satellite phone by then. Um, so you still have no clue that you're going to go to South America. Oh, no, you're no, just no, riding no. around America and no, I had no no idea. Um, and as I went to, well, of course in Canada, I saw saw a lot of cool wildlife. Like you know, there were there were these mountain goats trying to eat my saddlebags, like up out of Jasper, and um, and I saw like a big uh, bighorn sheep, like the rams. Um, uh, over in Waterton, which is the, the Canadian side of the, I guess they call the International Peace Park, and Glacier's on the other side. So I came out of Waterton, I came down to Glacier, um, and I, I hiked into Glacier Park, and real cool, there was this place where there were these huge waterfalls, and there was like this pond there. And of course, there's nobody for miles around. I was like, I'm going swimming, so I threw off all my clothes and I, I get in this this pond and I'm just hanging out, having a having a very nice very nice time. And and I look up, and it was a it was a nice sunny day, and the sun turned red. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> that I've not seen before, you know. I've done a lot of hallucinogens in my day, but I've never seen the sun just turn red. That's that's amazing. And, you know, have we, have we changed solar systems here? You know? And then I went, oh, that's smoke. This is a national park that is on fire. You know? So I so I thought about it, and I thought, okay, I have two choices. One, I can I can stay in this water and hope that it keeps me from burning up. 
or the other is I can try and get the hell out of here in case the water is going to boil, you know. I don't want to be that, you know, <laughs> do the lobster thing, you know. And so I, I, I opted for getting the hell out. And so I got back, hiked back out. It was a couple of miles back to where my bike was. By then it was getting pretty smoky. And then I started coming around the park and I had, I had booked a, a room in a hostel or, or a bed in a hostel uh, on earlier in the day. And so I started riding toward there, and it's smoky, man. I mean, it's like I can't hardly see a thing. But I, I get down the mountain, and I and I pull into the hostel, which is about a thousand miles from where I'd see my buddy, um, you know, New Mexico, and and there's his bike. And so I walked in, and I said, "Well, where is he?" And I said, "Oh, he's down at the bar watching the football game." So I went down to the bar, and you know, walked up, and he just said, "Where you been?" And and so. You know, just just picked up right where we left off, and we met a couple guys that were Swedes that were there, and we all kind of hit it off, and we were hanging out and walking around. I didn't even know they were on motorcycles. I think everybody's everybody's ass was so sore by then that we, you know, nobody was even thinking about their bikes. We were just walking around the 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 park and having a nice time, and and it suddenly came up that we were on motorcycles and they were on motorcycles, and and. Uh, yeah, well, what are you doing? They said, well, we're riding around the world. And uh, they they had some sponsorship, and they were photographers. Um, I actually have the book that they did from that. Um, and and then they said, yeah, we're heading to South America next. Did you end up in the book in any of the pictures or stories? We, we, we got an acknowledgement. For some reason, they didn't take our picture. But there's, there's actually, we might have taken the picture that, was, um, that has the two of them standing there in the rain. or after Because at one point in Costa Rica, it was, it was raining so hard that it was bouncing up to about knee level. Um, I mean, it was really coming down. And we just stopped in the middle of the road because there was just no going anymore. And, and then about the time it started to clear off, we got the two soaked down Swedes. And the only one that could have put, taken the picture was either Matt or I would have done it, would have taken it. Um, so you guys are hanging out at the hostel. Yeah, we're hanging out at the and hostel. And they, they just said they invited you to come they to said, South yeah, America? yeah, we're going to South America next. You want to come? Like, it was kind of matter of fact. It was like, and, and Matt was like, yeah, I guess so. And I was like, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> and so we decided we'd meet up in Texas and I think they were going out west to go to California and do that thing and Matt and I headed back east his his dad lived in Fort Wayne Indiana and we headed that way and and then I like went up through like across Lake Michigan and um, you know, taking the ferry and all that kind of stuff. And how was um, the bike running? Did, were you having any bike problems at that time? Or, no, gazillions. I mean, I had um, it pretty much went straight to pieces in uh, Vegas. Um, I, I limped into Vegas on one cylinder, um, and that was kind of cool. I was at the Grand Canyon, and uh, I'm a I'm a deadhead from way back, and. And I, all of a sudden, there were people everywhere with tie-dyes and all kinds of stuff. And I said, well, what the hell's going on? I guess I hadn't been paying attention. And they said, we're going to the dead. The dead are playing in Vegas. And I was like, you got tickets? You know, so um, I sort of pulled into Vegas going bang, bang, bang on one cylinder and, and went to the, the first show. 
and found I'd, I'd found one for the second night there's three nights so I found I got a right there at the show I picked up a the first night ticket and uh, I had uh, stopped and met my cousin Harry and said you know going to the dead we'll see you later you know nice to meet you and and, and off I went and went to the show bang 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 half the time on one cylinder then it would kick in if I'd go fast enough I got a ticket on the way to the damn show because I had to keep it going a certain speed just to keep both cylinders running it was, it was a mess and uh, ended up I had um, I pretty much cooked the electrical system all that heat coming across the Mojave that you know if it's 117 in the shade there's no shade it's probably 130 you know so who knows I mean and the bike running hotter than hell should have gone at night but you know you live you learn and so I actually had to come back I ended up flying back to North Carolina had some guys working on the bike out there and I learned how to do all that stuff later but then I didn't know um, and they got it back going and straightened out before I, I went on west out to um, California so um but anyway we came back across and he snapped a drive shaft out in the middle of the night and maybe now we were past Montana by then might have been Minnesota or something and uh, that's the only time we ever used that bag phone we pulled it out in the <laughs> middle of the night and I called AAA and said you need to come pick us up, and we went through a big rigmarole with them about you know. And he got his BMW fixed to the yeah, shop. Yeah, got the uh, not the BMW. That was the, that was his Honda. Oh, the Honda. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it got us taken to a shop, and um, they actually put both bikes on there because it was cold out, and we were like, okay, I'll ride in the truck with you, dude. <laughs> so. So about so how long have you been on the road at this point? So. Because I mean, you've left North Carolina, you've gone out essentially to Vegas, had all these issues. You made it out to the West Coast. You bumped into the Swedes in Glacier. Right. Now you're heading back east to get prepped to go to South America. Is this a three months, five months? How long have you been going? I left in the spring of 94, and this was heading into the fall of 94. So I'd been on the road for a while. See, the, uh, see I love these stories because, you know, I just recently had a very dear friend pass away. And I had met him in San Francisco, um, the mid '80s, and I had done a trip from Florida to Alaska on an old Honda. So oh, cool. I'm sharing. Yeah, I the story. What was it? It was a Honda CB554 cylinder, and I bought it from a guy called Crazy Laughing Dave Wainwright. He was the getaway driver for the bank robber that I'd lived with. So there was a bit of a history to this story. And I had made it all the way to the just shy of the Arctic Circle in this old Honda. And then we sold it and hitchhiked to San Francisco and stayed in the hospital, you know, went out in the town with a group of Aussies, fell out of a taxi drunk with this guy called Dave Peach and became lifelong buddies. And this was 1986. Well, he was going around the world going west and I was going east. Okay. And like with you and your friends, we just said, hey, we'll see you in Sydney in a few months. Right. And we went on to China, Japan, Hong Kong, Korea. We were through Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, hitchhiking around Australia. And then cool. somehow we all ended up in Sydney at the same time. So when you're talking, it's like, yeah, that's what that's how it used to be in those days. And months right. used to disappear and no one knew where you were. You, you weren't texting every seven minutes. <laughs> that's right. So, I mean, you've been now six months on the road. Yeah, something like that. And you're back east, but you're getting ready to go to South America, correct? Right, yeah. We 
we came back I stopped and saw some friends along the way um, stopped in Philly and some other places and I was I was coming out down around Baltimore when the the I pulled in my clutch and it stayed in the handle stayed in so I had no clutch and it would not disengage uh, it turned out the fork that holds it had snapped um, I threw an extra one of those in the saddlebag on the way to South America what I didn't take into consideration was that the the shaft that it went on might twist in half uh, which it did in somewhere in the middle of Ecuador and that's a that's another story that actually was pretty cool because <laughs> they um, we, we we found this shop uh, found a welder I mean we were in the middle of nowhere Ecuador up on top of a mountain we had taken a wrong turn that's when we lost the Swedes and never saw them again um, but <laughs> we we go up to this shop and say hey, do you think you can weld this and 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 guy took a look at it and said you know let me see and came back and the guy went no no but we're making you one yeah like, really guy had fired up the lathe he said come back in half an hour and they made me a better shaft than Harley had made to start with I mean it was it was big solid I mean it was so it was great so when you're in Baltimore you were able obviously to buy parts in the Harley dealership right no middle of the night so I just I would pull into the gas station I would get it into neutral I would fill it up oh and then fortunately the the couple stations I was at there was a little bit of a slope so you could so roll it down click it into gear click it into gear and keep going then just shift on up to fifth gear and get on down the highway good times yeah you know speed shit. oh yeah I've had to do that let in off it and then just you know click and you know most of the time you don't even grind so if you're once you get used to it so I went all the way from there around Baltimore to Chapel Hill um, that night I just kind of rode all the way through the night which was actually a good time to do it because there's not a lot of traffic so you're not dealing with as much shifting and uh, something I didn't realize at that point was the um, there was a, a seal that's at the back of the primary where your sh uh, starter shaft comes through and that thing had popped out and was that those were belt drive bikes the rear drive was a belt drive and it had been splashing oil onto that belt the whole way uh. and as I pulled into my driveway I I in, in, in Chapel Hill and I was I, I was actually backing down the hill we had this carport that was like closed in with plastic and stuff to, that I could work on my bike in and as I rolled that thing down most of the teeth just spit off the belt <laughs> like well, that was really good timing because it got me here. You, know? <laughs> you just got home. Yeah, just, just in the nick of time. So at that point, it was like, okay, well, on that thing, you had to pull the whole rear end off just to, you know, you got to pull the whole primary off. You got to pull the rear end off just to get it because there was a bar across the, the swing arm and the whole thing. I mean, those that was like a year or so or three before they switched it to where you could at least get to the belt without ripping out the, the the rear wheel and the rear swing arm um, so so I had to rip the whole thing apart so at that point I was like well if I'm going to South America this thing ought to be in good shape and there was a an old mechanic there that used to work at a Harley shop up in Durham North Carolina 
Uh, his name was Jimmy Davis. I'm not Jimmy Davis was pretty old then, so I'm not sure he's still around. I haven't checked on him in a long time. Probably no point in checking on him now. You know. Um, but he helped you get the Harley ready for the trip. Yeah. Well, I took him the engine. Oh, so you took the engine out. Yeah, I just took the engine out. I, I did everything else. I went from front to back on that thing, and 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 he did the engine because I knew I had no business doing that, and and he went through and you know made sure everything was tip top on the engine, and I slapped it back in there and put everything back together. And uh, my buddy Randy was living at the house there with us uh, at that point. Uh, the <laughs> the the window to his room was right next to that thing, and it. At about like four o'clock one morning, I it was time to get out the the, the air ratchet. Actually, I had an electric impact out there, and uh, and I was I forget what I was putting on. Oh, I was probably putting on the the um, I don't remember. Oh, it, it probably would have been the crankshaft bolt that holds the whole primary together and all that kind of thing with the chain. And and I hit that thing at about four o'clock in the morning. And I think. I'm not sure he ever touched the ground. He came all of a sudden. His head stuck out the window. Going, what the fuck's going on? You know, it was, it was uh, pretty exciting for him. But uh, I've been known to be inconvenient. <laughs> so you put this thing together, right? Motor then, goes back in, rebuilt. Rebuilt everything. What just, type of supplies or spares did you think you were going to take for this journey? I took an extra electrical system with me um, mm. in the saddlebag, basically. So you got a a stator and a voltage regulator, an ignition. I got an extra. I got all that stuff, and and I just showed it in a saddlebag. I mean, they don't take up that much space. And and did that you way, take tubes, tires, tents, sleeping bags? Well, those were tubeless tires. Wait, no, those weren't tubeless tires. Those were those wire wheels. Yeah, those were wire wheels. So yeah, I think I, I threw extra tube here and there and, and some of that stuff in. Clutch and, plates, uh, clutch levers, brake levers, stuff like that? No. No. I don't think I did. I don't think I did put all that stuff in there. I probably should have, but I didn't. Because it's, you know, it's just telling the story. I mean, so you're going now into 1995. Right. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I think I left, I left in November, November 1st. Seems like I always go someplace... Like I'll have Halloween somewhere. Well, exactly the time that you exactly the time you're doing this, I was in Florida, okay, researching going to South America because um, obviously I was in South America in '95 at the same time you right. were, and that's the reason for this conversation is we, right? Obviously, we met at the coffee shop and realized we were both riding around South America. And so the time you're doing this, I was actually in Florida with three other guys, and we were building four Kawasaki's that we were going to take. Cool. And we'd got, basically, we bought five pieces of junk, made four bikes out of it, and then we put this communal spares kit together, you know, coils, right, electrical things, clutch right, blades, brake. Yeah. Yeah. So I was yeah. interested, you know, what you carried for spares, because we, we were able to take a bag of stuff that would have worked for all four bikes, because cool. they, were, they were the same, so. We so all you, had different bikes. Well, the two, yeah, well, you had the two your Swedes had Beamers. Okay. And so they could pretty much get parts anywhere. But uh, your buddy Harley. was on the Gullwing. You were right. on the Harley. Right. So you took off out of Chapel Hill in early 95? No, it was still 94. Still 94, yeah. yeah. still 94. November 1st. Hit the road. 
Fantastic. And you went straight to the Mexican border at that point? Went, uh, I think I stopped at my brother's house in Mississippi and went to, uh, we met up in Austin. And then we went down, I had a buddy of mine who had uh, used to live in my driveway in Chapel Hill. He had like a motorhome. He lived in the driveway in Chapel Hill. And uh, he, uh, we were actually squatters in Chapel Hill, which is a pretty cool place to be a squatter because it's expensive to live there. So if you don't pay rent, you know, it's kind of nice. Uh, but anyway, it's another story. And, and so, but he was down in Beeville, Texas, where his mom and stepdad lived. And, and his stepdad had built some great big monster uh, trike he rode on. He was a really big guy, and he, and he had a huge trike. Um, but, uh, but they, you know, they were bikers, and they were, they were cool with us coming and that kind of thing. So we went and, and stayed with them in Beeville, Texas, which is down below uh, San Antonio. And, and we took off from there and went to, I guess that's Brownsville? Brownsville, Texas, you cross the border. Yeah, there. where you yeah. cross over. I've crossed and, at Brownsville. Yeah. And uh, so we're, we're sitting there waiting to, to get everything cleared to get ourselves across. And uh, you know, I didn't speak Spanish, really. I, 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 I had a little high school Spanish that I'd long ago forgotten, you know. And, uh, and so there was some guy that was sitting there, and he was, uh, he, he was, he was a Mexican guy. And, he, and so he asked, you know, do you speak any Spanish? And, and I said, un poco, which means <laughs> a beak. And he started to laugh, you know. I meant un pico, I suppose, but, you know, which means a little. But I said un poco. I said, so I spoke a beak of Mexican, <laughs> or, or of, excuse me, of Spanish. And so that, uh, that really served me well. <laughs> I, I, did the Swede? Did the Swede speak Spanish? One of them did. Yeah. And and so that was kind of cool. Um, it was it was really helpful actually because he he could speak a little Spanish. But we'd sit there. Of course, you know the the Swedes spoke English well, but there were there were still gaps in there, and so we we would um, he would translate from them. Then he. He'd tell us and stuff like that. You know, I mean, there was just little stuff, you know, like he said, you know, I forgot my jacket, you know, instead of his jacket and that kind of thing. But, so what, um, what was your route down through Mexico then? Did you head, Did you just head straight down to the Yucatan? Did you, which coast did you go down on? We went down, we were... We you would have been on the we're, East Coast. We were more East Coast, but then yeah. we moved over West and ended up all the way going through at about Tapachula. Mm, mm. And uh, uh, crossed into Guatemala and... Uh, that was kind of cool. The the thing I remember about Guatemala was we we went to um, into a little town uh, named Saint Marco or San Marco, and uh, and we're we're in San Marco and the heavens opened up. I mean, it really started pouring, and uh, so we said, "Is there any place around here to stay?" And they some little kid took off and ran away, and then ran back and follow me, and so we went with the kid and. Like went and got there was a hot shower in there. You know the hot showers there are cool. You know where they got the wire sticking out of the wall that goes up to the. Where was a luxury to get a hot shower? Oh my God, wasn't it? Yeah. See, that's the first question I like to ask. You know, you got you got, you got hot water. Agua caliente. That's right. Agua caliente. Yeah, that's right. And uh, but they've got those things that stick out that you know that has the wire sticking to it right there above your head. Oh yeah. And they warm the water up right there, which is 
Which is great, except if you get electrocuted. Yeah. You try not to, right? Yeah, you always try not to. Though you're standing there real wet under a couple of really live wires. It's how long would, How long did it take to get down through Mexico? Was it weeks, exactly. months? I mean, no, no. I think we we did Mexico in in a week or so. And you didn't you didn't travel around the Yucatan. You didn't go down into Belize. You went straight down. No, we went down. Yeah, we. Yeah. The the Swedes wanted to get to Chile for some reason or another. I think they wanted to to be down there during the winter time. I so guess. they were in a bit of a hurry to get through Central America. Yeah, yeah. a little bit, a yeah. little bit. Yeah. But you would have been when you got into Guatemala, you would have picked up the Pan American Highway. Right. And oh, a lot yeah. of that was still dirt and gravel back in oh, 95. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it's great and sometimes it's just <laughs> chunks and pieces. Like if you're coming through Costa Rica, all of a sudden, I can remember seeing myself run through the jungle because you're going through the jungle, but you're on this beautiful Well, road. Costa Rica had nice roads. Honduras beautiful. as well in that yeah. time, right? Yeah. Honduras, some of them. Some of them. Um, we, were, we, were, we were in Copan in um, uh, when we went into Honduras. And I remember the the roads weren't real good, but we we saw the the like the the ruins and all that kind of thing, which was really cool. You got all these cool skulls and stuff like that. It's it's pretty neat stuff. But but in Guatemala, with that the thing, we came out of um, the room, nice rooms, everything was good, and uh, there's all these people standing out in the street, and they've got this big statue of Jesus or Mary, I can't remember which, and and they're holding that up on their shoulders and they're all holding candles and they hand us each a candle. We're like, well, okay, you know. And so then we all start marching down the street with these candles and it's like, okay. And then there's another group coming the other way and they've got a different statue and they've got all their candles. And we're like, they gonna fight, you know? <laughs> and no, they all got together and everybody was happy. And then we all went to this, this house and they sat us, all the four of us, in a little row. And on, on this couch, and the couch sat real low down on the floor. And, and Anders, one of the Swedes, was having in this real intense conversation with, with, with somebody there. And, and we're sitting there going, are they going to eat us? I'm picturing myself being boiled in a pot or something you know, at this <laughs> point. And, you know, and Anders turns around and says, they want to know if we want to play volleyball. I'm like, Hell yeah, we'll play volleyball. That beats being eaten. You know, and so we we all went off and played volleyball, and 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 they uh, the the mayor came and gave us a plaque at the end about how good it'd been for their city for us to come there. Why a bunch of why it was good for a bunch of dirty bikers to come to their city? I have no idea, but you know it was uh, it was something different. But being in Central America is like being a rock star. You pull into a gas station, mobbed four bikes, and there'd be be like a hundred people there in no time, just all gathering around and. You know, touching the bikes and, you know, you got to make sure kids don't burn themselves and that kind of thing. We had the yeah. same experience. And then, obviously, in the evenings, a lot of times, we would spend half the night driving all the kids around. They'd climb all over the bike and yeah. we'd run them around the square. It's cool stuff. It was like a party everywhere you went of people with I these know. bikes. And the question I had to ask you, like, a lot of times, um, we had started, in, we, we actually flew our bike or shipped our bikes to Guatemala City. We started because okay. we were limited time. Um, we would take the bikes into the hotel rooms at night a lot. Oh, would you really? Yeah. Or put them up on the balconies. We'd chain them together. Okay, yeah. And we would you know, obviously chain them. I don't know if you... I that was more so, I think, when we got down into South America, we would in the hotel rooms. But a lot of times, okay. I mean, I was always very worried about the security of the bikes. I've done that a number of times. You know, I did it more in the States, you know, when, than I did it down there, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So you stay like stay with the Swedes. You you're with your buddy, and you you're rolling yeah. through Honduras. You go into Nicaragua. Yeah, Honduras, Nicaragua. Um, Nicaragua was kind of hot then, mm. um, and so we actually did Nicaragua in a day. It was beautiful, but we just rode all the way through. Did you go down past Lake Managua? I believe we did. You must have yeah. done it because you'd, yeah. you'd have run down through well, Esteli down. You'd have gone to yeah, it was, Managua. It was, it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. But they were there was a there was some heat down there. So then, when you went into Costa Rica, did you climb up into the rainforests? Um, we. Where did we go in Costa? I don't think we did. You know, we went down to the west coast. Mm. Uh, David down oh, in there. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, David's David. Panama. No, um, yeah, you're right. We were somewhere out there on the west coast of Costa Rica. It was, it was beautiful. And now, at that point, of course, coming into Costa Rica, I think it was my last day in Honduras. I got, I ate something, not good. And by the time we got into Costa Rica, I was fading. It was one of those situations where you knew it was you know, coming. Yeah, it was like you know. I had an egg sit situation. Sit out in the toilet proof. with a trash can in your hand because you don't know which end's coming first. You know. Oh so, yeah. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> that happened a couple times, um, and so that 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 was a little less fun. But they had the black sand beaches and all that kind of stuff in the west coast of, of Costa Rica. I don't know if you remember or if it happened, but my one memory of going into Costa Rica, it was the only border crossing in late 1995 that had air conditioning and computers. Oh, okay. All the other border crossings, they were writing everything in pieces of paper and ledger books. I don't know if it, Costa Rica had modernized, because you were there a few months before me. I don't remember. You know... It's hard to remember too, all of it, isn't well, it? Not too, well, that, not too long after that, I took a really good crack on the head. Um, coming out of uh, Peru and into Chile, I... Uh, so let me back you up before wild. you get there. So you've come through Costa Rica, you went into Panama... How did you get around the Darien? Did you? We took a ship. We put the bikes. Those the the cost was pretty close to put the bikes on a plane or put the bikes on a ship. Yeah. And so we put them on a plane, and we flew too. Oh, um, cool! And we flew into Cali. We actually boated to Cali. I, oh, okay. I had had a torrid love affair with a raven-haired beauty in Panama City while we were nice. shipping our bikes, and nice. and then we got in this ship it was like a cruise ship for holiday makers with russian dancers and all this crazy stuff nice. and that's how we ended up but they kicked us off at cali as well so you started at the same place did, you have, did, did it take a long time to get your bikes out of customs not too long because we rolled them off the boat and just went straight into columbia did you get stuck we were in columbia and the bikes were just stuck and well, we had been stuck in Guatemala for four days to get our bikes initially, but we didn't have any problems afterwards. Oh, okay. Something about getting those bikes out of there. There's a lot of bribing has to go. Yeah, usually that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of bribe money, so that slowed us down. Yeah. So how did you get the bikes of the customs in Colombia eventually? We waited till they got sick of us. That was pretty much it. And it was... And by the time I got my bike back, everything that said Harley Davidson on it had been ripped off of there. <laughs> <laughs> Emblems off the saddlebags, you know. Everything was gone. Oh, yeah. yeah. They just pulled that stuff off there. There's something about the words Harley Davidson. Everybody. Do you remember it. how many days that took? It was about a week. Oh, yeah. It was about a week. But it's funny when you, you think about these time frames now in the modern world where, you know, if somebody doesn't get off the traffic lights inside seven seconds because they're texting or eating or whatever they do right. in the cars 
the whole world's honking and going insane and he were in those days you could literally just have to sit in the town for a week waiting for a motorcycle to get broke loose you know right and of course now i mean then like traffic lights and like in brazil if you're in brazil if it's red you go <laughs> which is kind of crazy because well well this was sao paulo you know which is a huge city what 22 million people or something like that. probably bigger now but there were people sticking guns in people's windows if so you didn't want to make so you just don't stop so so yeah so you know but you people might stop at the green light because they think somebody else was coming <laughs> but but at the red light it was just punch it baby it was kind of crazy so so what was your what was your route down through Colombia? We went to from Cali, I think we went to Bogota, and then we went up into the mountains to Cali and crossed in the high mountains up into Ecuador. Did you? Well, I don't remember exactly the route was. I know we obviously we went to Ecuador, and we we did we went up in the mountains and I we went to Otavalo when we were in uh, uh, in Ecuador. Now, oh, during the wait, we we were actually everything was pretty pretty much okay because we stayed next to the brothel, so you know the the they they, they kept us pretty well entertained. <laughs> we we became friends. We 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 became friends with the with the with the ladies that live there. They like those American dollars, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, we actually it probably was your charming personality those, those, and sparkling those, wit those, and humor, right? Well. We just sort of made buddies with them, and we started. We'd take them out to the movies, and take them out to eat and stuff, and just, you know, it's like, and and just, but but just to hang out with them, you had to pay whoever their guy was over there for the night anyway, whether whether you're gonna do anything or not, you know. But uh, but just for those, it was kind of nice to give those give them a break. You give know? them a nice and, mouth. Yeah, they need a nice break. So we'd take them to the movies and stuff, and they were like, you know, the the one of them said to me, "You are my love." <laughs> <laughs> so we had fun, um, and and that was cool. It's, we we had to laugh though. It's like you know, because uh, <laughs> Matt would say to me, "Yeah, our our girlfriends have to go to work now." <laughs> uh, so you got your bikes. You roll across Colombia in Ecuador. In Ecuador and uh, in Otavalo, which was really a cool place. It's kind of an art artsy center up in the mountains. And, mm. And we all hung out up there, and I actually got a bunch of clothes and different stuff and sent them back. And you know, I was hoping some friends of mine would sell them. Basically, my friends wore them. But <laughs> but it's it's interesting how much Ecuador changes after Colombia because Colombia is so lush and green, and then yeah. the high mountains of Ecuador are so barren in that that early part. Did you remember that? Well, Otavalo wasn't. I don't think it seems to me it was still fairly getting close to the equator. Though. So yeah. it's yeah. Um, but then. Yeah, you get down towards Quito and all that stuff, though, and it is kind of barren down that way. And then you get into Peru, and I mean, so much of that's just desert. And uh, So you went Colombia, Ecuador, you went through Peru. Did you drop down into Chile, or did you stay high and go into Bolivia? Oh, no, we went, we went down to Chile, yeah. We so you ran Bolivia. down to the Atacama and went out on the, on the, the coast. Yeah, the, um, I don't know if the um, uh, Valle de la Luna is uh they call the valley of the moon and in the atacama desert and if you go down into the in down into the valley there if you look around there's no vegetation no nothing and it looks like you're on the moon so i went down there and 
Now, I'd given this up long ago, but some of the other folks found some, uh, some San Pedro cactus, and uh, apparently the, uh, the San Pedro cactus will get the job done. So uh, I'm out there with a bunch of yahoos that we'd met down there, <laughs> and my buddies you know, wandering around. By then, we'd lost the Swedes, because in Ecuador, Matt and I took a wrong turn. Mm. The Swedes went straight down the Panamericana, and we went up in the mountains, and that's when the clutch snapped. And you had to and do the so, things with yeah, the rod, had to do all yeah. That. And so, we never saw them again. Um, we've we've talked a couple times. Just a couple of months ago, I talked to Ingvar, Ingvar and Anders were the the two Swedes. That's so cool. So all these years later, you've kept in touch. Yeah, huh? yeah. He's got he's got some kind of a cool. Um, well, he's a he's a photographer, and I guess he's pretty pretty internationally acclaimed photographer. And and so there's um. You can go on the web and find him, Ingvar Kean, K-E-A-N-E. And, and he's oh, that might be interesting uh, when I'm done to go look up his work after you travel. So, yeah. you never, so you lost him in, basically lost him in Ecuador. Lost him in Ecuador, never saw him again, and, and Matt and I kept going. Where did you have your big crash? Because this was a big part of the story. That was in Chile. I, um, we went down through Peru, and after we left Ecuador, and... I'm riding along one day, and all of a sudden, it's like, man, this thing's handling like a tank. Like, I go like this, and, and it's like, it's hardly turning, but everything's really just, what's happening here? And I look down, and the the bottom leg of the triple tree, with the, for those of you who don't, uh, if you, you know, because you're a biker, if you're listening to this, probably, but uh, that's, the, that's the piece that holds your fork, your front fork, and it had snapped. And so it was just yawing open back and forth like this. It was like, this is time to find another welder. So we, we did. We found a welder, and he welded a, a piece of steel onto that so it would stay together and, and not fly off or, or, or continue break. If, if the top piece had broken, it would have been really exciting. You know, you yeah. wouldn't do too well on one fork, I wouldn't think. Yeah. Gosh. And uh, so we, we came down through there, and I, I, had, a, I had a couple incidents in, in that period, one was, I was, in Peru, they have a lot of tolls, but they don't charge you a toll if you're on a motorcycle. No, you skirt around the booth on the box, you go to right. the side on the yeah. little trail with all the yeah. mopeds and the pedestrians, right? And I came around there one time and turned around to wave, you know, hey, thanks, and they have those bars that come out that basically are supposed to stop people from driving through and it wailed me right on the knee, and I'm going too. And I thought my knee was destroyed. What I thought it went like up and down. Turns out it went side to side, oh. so it knocked it out of the way. But it hurt like hell. I mean, I was when I stopped. I had to. It was on my right leg, and you know, I put my left leg down and was like, "Oh my God, I'm going. I'm going to get surgery in Peru. Uh, this is not good." Uh, I'm thinking. You think maybe they can pack me on an airplane and pack it in ice and get me the hell out of here? I, I mean, I just, I didn't know, you know. But we we got down to Ancon, which is like on the coast right near Lima, and and I stumbled around for a couple days. But it turned out it really wasn't that bad. I mean, it blew up like a balloon, but it was okay. And so I recovered from that and headed down to to Chile. And probably last day in Peru, got a hold of something else that 
you know, ripped us both up. We actually went and stayed in a real live hotel for like three days the first, when we first got to Chile. Just to try and get yourself back oh, in yeah. your feet. I, I just remember a lot of green. You know, there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of green stuff coming out from every place it could come out from. And it was just bad. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. And, and so we, we were pretty dehydrated and exhausted and all that thing. And we took off from there. And I guess I must have felt cold. Because it seems to me, I think I had chaps on and jacket on that day. I at least had a, my jacket on. But apparently, I think what happened was I probably just fell asleep. Because I don't remember anything about the crash itself. Um, but next thing I know, well, I don't know much. I remember, I remember trying to sit up in the back of a car and somebody putting their hand on my chest and pushing me back down. And then I remember being in a hospital a little bit. And then I remember being in this room. And now Matt remembers all of this because he looked in his rear view mirror and I was face down on the pavement. And and then some people showed up and took me to the hospital and that kind of thing. When, when we went back to look at the spot, there was a, the side of the road had probably a drop off of eight or nine inches at least, something like that. And I think what probably happened was I probably went off the road. That probably woke me up and I thought, gotta get back on the road, cut it, and just cut flips. Um, there was a- How was the bike? That was my question. <laughs> How, where's my bike? How's my bike? And that's, say, and now Matt, I mean, I was completely out of it. I've never been the same. But I was completely out of it for a while. And Matt says that in those first two days after the crash, I said to him, did you see me crash about every two minutes? And he, I said, did you see me crash? And he go, no, I didn't see you crash. Two minutes later, I go, did you see me crash? No, I mean, just couldn't piece it together. Everything was just <laughs> And uh, so, and my balance was shot. I mean, it was... There was a number of issues going on there that you know I was I was all screwed up, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 he said, I, I, I'll show you the helmet I was wearing. I was it was just a beanie, but it's got a scrape all the way across the top. That you know it was good I had it on because that would have just you know I would have been bald then instead of now. You know? uh, but yeah, it was a it was a big one, and and the bike. Front fender gone, windshield gone, obviously, um, you know, bent and bruised all to pieces. Um, and my parents had been talking about having me come home just to visit them for Christmas. And so I flew up for Christmas, gathered a bunch of parts together while I was up here, and then flew back. You know, obviously I had a round trip ticket. and. And I remember, you know, I'm stumbling sideways off the plane, and you know, my I'm at my parents' house, and my buddy says I came off there looking like some, some something off a cough drop box, and and said uh, I, I we'd be watching a show or something, and I'd say, is that the Blue Lagoon? And and they'd go, yeah. And two minutes later, I'd be, is that the Blue Lagoon? <laughs> so I mean, I was I was whacked out for quite a while. Um, months really if you get right down to it it was really a smack on the head and so after a couple weeks there 
I said, well, time to go back. You know, that's when the return ticket was. And my dad looked at me and he goes, you're going back? And I was like, yeah, my bike's down there. Are you kidding? You know, so, uh, uh, I remember him looking at me when I was getting on the plane, just going, oh, my God. You know, What's wrong with this guy? We're going to see him again. You know? And so I came back. and I, Where was Matt at this point? Matt was still, we were, we were staying in Iquique in Chile and uh, had this place um, where we rented a room from this guy named Oscar. And uh, we actually paid Oscar to 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 get um, American cable enough so we could watch the we could watch the playoffs in the Super Bowl. <laughs> so that's that's about the time of year it was, you know, around February by then. We stayed we stayed in Iquique for a while because we were waiting to get my bike fixed. And uh, I found a guy down there who was a painter, um, and 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 he did a. A relatively nice job of putting it together. So then we left Iquique and traveled down in Chile to Santiago, and and we were staying in this national park that was up up above Santiago, and we would and the the but the thing was it had like this dirt and gravel road that went up the side of the mountain, and there were switchbacks, some of the tightest switchbacks I've ever seen. There was, I think, eight or nine switchbacks going up the side of that mountain. And my balance was extremely challenged at this point. I mean, I would fall over standing there. Just like, hey, Mike, boom. Oh, yeah, I'm down here. And and so every every time I hit one, I don't know how much challenge there was to those curves for the other guys. Probably not much. Because we had met this guy named Christian who lived, I don't even remember where he lived. I think California somewhere. But he... He had ridden all the way from Alaska down there, and went and he went all the way to Tierra del Fuego on a 350 Yamaha, like you know, enduro kind of bike. I mean, he was a madman. He was a lot of fun. Um, but he was we were all staying up in the park there together, and it probably wasn't much challenge for them getting up and down that thing. But every one of those curves that I got to, I really had to think about how I was going to throw myself into it, and and that. Okay, well, that was where I found the guy that was going to do... I guess he redid the tanks and the stuff for me, and I brought a fender back with me because I'd had an extra fender. So I guess that guy was doing some tank stuff because at that point, the, the bike looked like the Terminator bike because I had... There was no tanks and no fender, and I had like a, a dirt bike tank that said Indian on it, strapped on my back seat and a long hose running down to the carburetor <laughs> and and so i mean it really it really looked like you know something out of frankenbike yeah it really did and the the other piece of that was though it didn't stop anything from coming up into your face i mean gravel one thing and... to not have a fender it's another thing to not have a tank and so when you don't have a tank it all comes and so i came to the, down the mountain one night to um I met some guys. There was actually a Harley shop in Santiago, and and I met some guys that that worked there and their friends and all that kind of thing. And so I came down to go to this party one night, and I came down that mountain road, and it's raining out. It started raining like hell, and I was just covered head to toe in mud. I mean, I was completely covered, and and so one of the guys said, "Come on," had some mercy on me. Said, "Come on, come on back to the house. You can get a." You can get a hot shower and that kind of thing. And 
that's when I was surprised out they they had toilets on the ceiling in um in in Santiago because what happened was I went and I got in the shower and I was taking a shower and then I looked up and I went now what the hell is that toilet doing up there on the ceiling well what I hadn't realized was that I had fallen out of the shower because I fell down a lot and I think I I I may or may not have knocked myself out at that point too <laughs> but who knows but but when I came to my senses I you know I had no recollection of falling out I just have a recollection of being on the floor and looking up and going what the hell is that toilet doing up there so that was that was kind of my state of mind at that point you know I was just you know I was I was making it minute to minute you know and uh so yeah they so if, if you ever see a toilet on a ceiling in Santiago you, you, you know, know that something's yeah, not that's, right that's right yeah you know something's not right and uh but somehow you kept riding I did. And you kept moving until you get the fender yeah. back on and get the tanks back on. No, I dropped the bike a lot because wow. I would just fall over, you know. But once I got going, that helped. Yeah. You know how it is. I mean, if you're going slow, you know, you're, you're a lot more likely to fall down. If you're, you know, if you're boogieing down the road, well, you can probably aim it, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And uh, then all the, um, the guys from... Chile, we're going over to Argentina, uh, to Mendoza, for some kind of deal over there. And they said, "Well, come on." And so we we rode over the Andes with all those guys, and and that was fun. We rode across the Andes, and we we ended up staying with this guy, Pepe. Um, we they they told us, "You you guys just go stay in this field." We were broke, you know. And so you guys go here. We'll park park it here. So. Oh, we just set up a tent and got ready to crash right there. I don't even know if we set up a tent or just threw our bags out or whatever. So, anyway, it's middle of the night and and some guy comes walking up and goes, "You are staying here?" And we go, and Matt was really exhausted by that point. He just went, "Yeah." <laughs> and uh, guy goes, "Okay." He goes, "All right. You may stay the night." You may stay a week. You may stay a month if you like. Like, okay. Then we stayed a month. And it, the next day, he came and got us from there and took us down. He he took us down to where he had these stables and he had this house by the stables and and said, here you go. And there were Arabian horses. This guy was very well off. It was a bodega right there. So he had uh, all the casks of wine and all that stuff in there, you know, the big barrels. And he had the... Arabian horse and all that kind of thing and our job really was to keep bottles of wine in his refrigerator for when he wanted to party and 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 Pepe would come by nightly and say okay it's time to go and we'd go out and he'd take us out to all these discos and stuff like that and and our job was to be his gringos and to and to go dancing and it's like okay you know and uh he owned a he owned a gypsy woman um, I, I guess it was a, a long-term rental. He said it was either two thousand dollars for three years or three thousand dollars for two years. I can't remember how that worked, but but anyway, it was a long-term rental. It's another world, yeah. And and I said, well, well, what about your wife? He goes, she lives in the city. I live in the country. I said, <laughs> how come? He goes, well, I said to her, we talked about getting divorced, and I said, well, we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. She said. I want to be a widow. <laughs> and he said, 
so I live in the country and she lives in the city. I was like, okay, I get it now, you know. So anyway, so we would go around and and go dancing and do that kind of thing, and and that was that. And so after we stayed there for about a month and had all kind of fun and that kind of thing, and went uh, we went we went we were in Argentina up near Paraguay, and. We got sick of each other again. That was about the time Mac and I got sick of each other again. It took a while, you know. And but you guys have been on the road a long time together. Yeah, now. yeah, we'd been hanging out for a while. And and so he decided he wanted to go back to Chile. And I decided I was going to go to Paraguay because I was kind of near there. And so he took off and went to Chile and actually ended up living down there for a couple of years. Um, I went to Paraguay, lived in Asuncion for about a month and kind of wandered around there and studied my... I, I stayed in this place where they 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 didn't have any any running water. There was a well in the middle, and you'd go get the well and like go over, and there was a place where you could take your well water and wash up and dump it. And, but there was a grapefruit tree growing in the middle of it, so I lived off the grapefruits, and I'd, and I'd learned how to make yerba mate by then, so I'd drink the yerba mate and eat my grapefruits and study Spanish, because I was by myself by now, and... And I didn't have anybody else that could could do it, so I would I would learn a few Spanish words, and then I'd go hang out with my friends, the TK Troncos, they called them. They they had these big tree trunks, and they they painted all over them. And I'm, I I think if the trees are if the trunks are still there, I'm on there too. And so I was, I was a member of the TK Troncos after a while, and um, and so we would hang out, and I would try out some of my Spanish words, and they'd go, Oh, muy bueno, gringo. And, and <laughs> I was there. Then I went to. Uh, uh, I rode back through part of Argentina, went to uh, Uruguay, where I'd met a um, a young lady who I I was interested in, who wasn't really interested in me, but we had fun, we hung out, and uh, and then I took off and went up the coast of Brazil, and in a little town called Casino, which is like the first place you came to coming into into Brazil, there was a I, I got a flat tire. And try to kind of fix a flat in there, and that didn't work. Nothing, nothing working. And some guy comes pulling up on. He was on a bike, I think. And anyway, he comes pulling up and says, "You need any help?" And you know how it is when you're in the middle of something. You know, that way. And you know, he's he goes, "Well, I will wait here until you are ready." And and uh, and I was like, "Okay, you know, whatever." And, just, and, and finally, I was just like, "Yeah." I, I'm stuck here, you know, and so he said, okay, give me your wheel, so I pulled the wheel off the back, found a, like a log or something to put the, the bike on, and just uh, handed him my back wheel, and off he went, and I'm like, God, I hope he comes back, <laughs> you know? and, but he did, he came back with the you know, wheel all fixed up, and tire all fixed up, and that kind of thing, and, and uh and, and and it's a little unnerving when you first get there because the, sometimes the it's a language thing, but it said you will come to my house, you will eat dinner, you will spend the night, you know. And you know when people first say that to you at first, you're like, that sounds a that bit a, direct. Is that a command? Yeah. 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 It, but it it's not really. I mean, that's just just the they're using language. your language, right? They're using in my simple language. Form. And you know when we were first in Central America, that was a little unnerving, but. By the time I got there, I was like, you're damn right I will. That sounds wonderful. I will come to your house. I will eat dinner. I will spend the night, you know. And and that guy, um, 
he even got me a date. I mean, we were, <laughs> we had a great time, and and uh, and then he lined me up with places to stay all the way up the coast of Brazil, and. Did you, did you find when you're traveling, because I, I think about this when you, when I'm listening to you talk, it's almost like, you know, to somebody who doesn't travel by motorcycle or taken the type of trips that you've taken, it seems a little odd or disconcerting that these interactions would happen with strangers. It's almost like there's a certain type of trade. Like you're providing some news and entertainment from the world and they're providing stuff that they have available to them, like their house or their food. It's but true. you're bringing some fresh perspective of the world or a different story to their life and they're using their assets to help you. And it's, it seems to me like, it, to me, I always felt like it was a nice exchange. It was never like people were giving you things. You, you were giving them something in return. Did you feel like that? Yeah, and I think kind of like if somebody shows up around here and, and it looks like a good story, well, come on over. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe it's like, you know, back when the storytellers used to travel. You well, know? you are a storyteller when you're traveling because you're you're amalgamating stories every day, having right. all these experiences. Exactly. And and somebody at home, not in a disrespectful way, doesn't do much new and then you arrive. You're a gringo, you're on a Harley, you're bug splattered, you're windswept and interesting and it's different. Yeah, yeah, it's a really nice, nice, nice deal. Yeah, it's a cool thing. So, Mike, so you, how long did you spend in Brazil working? Because this was the end of your trip now, right? You you ended in Brazil? Yeah, well, as I worked my way up the coast, I stayed in Porto Alegre and and then Florianopolis. And there, there, like this guy, like I say, lined me up. There was a, his nephew was in Porto Alegre. They lined me up with somebody up there. And then I went and stayed with these um, people in 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 Sao Paulo. Can you stop for a sec? Yeah. Go run to the can real quick. We are back in and on. Hopefully uh, audio levels stay good for you. Uh, so, so wrapping up, you ended your trip in Brazil? I did. I. Uh, what was your decision at the time? Did you just feel like I've been riding so many months now, so many countries, the bike was worn out, you were worn out, you had the money, or were you just ready for to get home? I think I was ready. Um, and I, 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 when I got to Sao Paulo, I was staying, I was saying these people that had no furniture, it was an interesting thing, not a stick in the whole house, and stayed with them for a little bit, and then I went and stayed, um, the, I had met these guys that had the, 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 a shop there called the Lobos do Asfalto, the Wolves of the Asphalt, and, uh, they were also part of a club called the Lobos, and they they said just come stay in the top of the shop, you know. And there was a there was a shower there, and there was a bathroom, and there was like a little top area up there. And uh, so I was like, all right, you know, that sounds good. And so I'd work on the bikes in the daytime and stay there at night, and just kind of wander around and go to the different spots where everybody hung out and just kind of did that thing for a while and it was cool and ended up selling my bike because I, I, I was making $22 a week uh, working at the shop you know that was you know there's a kind of a disparity between you know there's class disparity there and if you're you're of the class that makes money you're gonna make money and if you're the class that doesn't make money you're not and I don't know where I fit into all that but I not not into the class that makes money obviously 
you were making enough to feed yourself and yeah a lot of times those guys take me out to eat at lunchtime anyway so and you know, they eat a big lunch and that kind of thing so then you decided well i'll sell my bike to these guys and this is time to wrap up well and not head to for the, those guys they they um they knew people that might be interested and eventually this guy came along that lived in sao paulo it was an older guy um and he was interested in buying a bike and so I ended up selling it for significantly more than I had paid for it to start with, which was kind of cool. Do you remember at all how many miles you'd actually put on the bike in all these countries? And how many countries it totaled out to? Miles, there's no way of telling really because I I have this speedometer thing. They break on whatever I, no matter what it is I drive or, or whatever bikes I have, the speedometers always quit. So you really didn't keep a track on the mileage. Yeah, I think I had three or four speedometers on that thing at different points, you know, because it's good to know how fast you're going and that kind of thing. But even like the one I have now, that thing quit. And uh, how many how many countries did that total out to be? Well, let's see. So you got Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. You ten by the time you you ten by the time you hit Costa Chile. Rica, Panama, and. So you got Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Paraguay, Uruguay, Brazil. So what, 14 countries, something like that. And total time of the journey by the time you got home, because you had been obviously on the road in America for months on end before you even left. And right. then this that journey- That was about a year, because I think I, I got back to the US in October and went into Mexico in November, pretty close to the beginning of November, halfway through November at the latest. And that was late 94. Right. And then you were in South America mostly in 95. Right. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't actually get into South America later in 95. So, okay. we, I mean, we were both on the same, we were riding around the same year, but I, I'd still, yeah. again, just yeah. wrapping up with our conversation today, Mike, you know, to me, it's still just one of the fascinating parts about life in motorcycling that I've been going to your coffee shop for nearly 15 years. I've taken literally hundreds of motorcycle riders there because when people come to Charlotte, I always bring them on this loop road right by your house, actually, which I never realized you lived here, so cool. to your coffee shop. And then it takes that chance meeting for us to talk so and learn cool. that we were both riding in South America in 1995. Now where, where in South America were you? I, ended, I went Guatemala to Peru. And I, cool. I went no further than the Bolivian border. Okay. And Did you I, go up into Bolivia? Or? No, oh, no. Okay. I We rode two up down to the Bolivian border on a GPZ 550 because I'd sold mine in, in Cusco. Oh, the GPZ 550? Yeah. What yeah. a great bike to do it on. It was fine, you know, and yeah. that was what, you know, that really, and I've actually done a podcast on here with Arthur um, about meeting Father Geo and how I found the kids in Peru and started my foundation. So it was a very, very pivotal journey for me because it really changed my life. And like I said, I think the coincidence of meeting you, we both live in the same neighborhood. There's not very many people you bump into no. who are riding around South America in 95. And I think your trip is way wilder than mine. Um, but not, but it's still, you know, it's been fascinating to chat to you today. And Man, Sounds you know. like more good may have come out of yours. <laughs> Ah, hey, you have a nice business and take care of a bunch of people and live well, you know. We, we do what we can. I'm well, Mike, not, thank I'm you for coming on the podcast today. And Mike Holliday, owner of the Crossroads Coffee Shop in Waxwell, North Carolina, who 
rode his Harley all the way to Brazil in 1994 and 1995. So something not too many people are doing these days. So thank you, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate it, Neil.